So we're in the fourth week of Advent and we're continuing on with our For the Least of These series and we're uh, at the story of the persistent widow. It's an interesting story and it's one uh, that I think as I prepared for and I read, um, there was a, a whole heap of new uh, information and, and a new set of uh, eyes to look at this story through. So um, I'm looking forward to sharing that with you and hoping that we can see something incredible uh, about who God is and about what he calls us to. So let's pray and then let's crack open our Bibles and, and have a look. Father, Son and Holy Spirit, we've been singing about you and to you. We've been singing together and there's something about that communal worship, communal singing, communal reaffirmation of our faith of your character and of your heart and love towards us. For that, we are grateful. Uh, I thank you for these people. I thank you that they come. I thank you that, uh, that I get the pleasure and the privilege of worshipping with them uh, week in and week out. Lord, for all the families represented here and, and for all those who, who aren't, who can't be here for whatever reason, I pray and ask that they will sense your presence, that they will know that you're with them and that they will know as they approach this time of busyness and craziness and pressure, uh, Lord, help them know deep in their bones, deep in their soul that uh, we're celebrating your birth, we're celebrating your love and your movement towards us. And for that, we are incredibly grateful. You've changed our world, you've changed our worldview. And uh, Lord, I pray and ask that we're able to experience and enjoy that fully. Open our eyes and ears, help us learn from this story uh, what it is to be a part of your even greater story. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said? So I've asked uh, Prince and Minu, they're going to read our story from their seats down there. So let's, if we can, you have your Bibles or your device or whatever it is that you use. Luke chapter 18, we're using the, uh, the message version because I, I like the way that Eugene Peterson has translated it. Take it away, guys. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. The story of the persistent widow. Jesus told them a story showing that it was necessary for them to pray consistently and never quit. He said, There was once a judge in some city who never gave God a thought and cared nothing for people. A widow in that city kept after him. My rights are being violated. Protect me. He never gave her the time of day. But after this went on, and on, he said to himself, I care nothing what God thinks, even less what people think. But because this widow won't quit badgering me, I better do something and see that she gets justice. Otherwise, I'm going to end up beaten black and blue by her pounding. Then the master said, Do you hear what that judge, corrupt as he is, is saying? So what makes you think God won't step in and work justice for his chosen people? who continue to cry out for help. Won't he stick up for them? I assure you he will. He will not drag his feet. But how much of that kind of persistent fate will, will the Son of Man find on the earth when he returns? Thanks, Prince. So for us to understand this story, we have to understand something that Jesus spent a lot of time both physically and also with his words trying to communicate. And this is this idea of 
the kingdom. Now, Dallas Willard, who's a philosopher, uh, both, and he's incredibly well respected in the secular philosophy community, and he is a profoundly spiritual and Christian man. And he says of the kingdom of God that the kingdom of God, let's read that together, is the effective range of what God wants to happen, happening through his people. So the kingdom of God, we think about God, and God is this omnipotent, which is this way of saying huge, massive, all-being, all-seeing, all-knowing. This is God. He's just immense. Spirit, immense. Knows everything, does everything, spoke the world into being, created, massive. This God, He brought into earth, so we know that the earth is a, a broken place, a fallen place, uh, our Genesis series spoke to us about uh, the, the, the difference between disorder and order. That was what creation was all about. So we are now living in the world and it is sinful. It is disordered. It's gone from being ordered to being disordered. And what the kingdom of God is, is it's God's way of bringing order into the disorder. Does everyone follow me when I say that? So what the kingdom of God happens, and what Dallas Willard said, and I think he's spot on, is that order happens through you and me. God doesn't sort of whoosh, whoosh, whatever sort of big noises you want to make, and things happen. The kingdom of God comes through you. And the kingdom of God comes through me. And it comes when I go into a situation. Let's just say I go to Bunnings and I'm standing in a very long line at Bunnings and there are people in front of me who are dawdling and going slow. There is nothing that induces rage in me more than standing in a line with someone who has to tell the checkout person a story about what they're doing. When, Shut up. Let's get on with this thing, man. Come on. I don't want to hear about what you've just bought your kids for Christmas. Pay your money and get out the door. So if hypothetically we're in this situation and we're standing in the line at Bunnings, I can bring the kingdom of God, I can bring the order of God into the disorder of that situation by being gracious and kind and not being in a rush and not saying, do you know what, Aaron, you're not that important that where it is that you have to get to next can't wait to hear this person tell a story to someone because they've just bought something for their children and they love them and they want to tell someone about that. The kingdom of God comes in that moment, in that scenario to those people when I act like Jesus acts. Amen? Does that make sense to you? So the kingdom of God is not, this could be potentially controversial, but hey, let's go there. The kingdom of God doesn't come when we make kids pray in school. And the kingdom of God doesn't come when we try and force the state to endorse Christian morals and beliefs. The kingdom of God doesn't come when a political leader stands up there and says, we will all do Christian things whether you believe them or not. That is not the kingdom. And I can tell you that with authority because Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't step into the political realm and say, I'm going to convert the greatest person in the, with political power and then they are then going to use their position in the state and they are going to decree Christianity from... It doesn't work like that. 
It doesn't work like that because Jesus didn't do it. It doesn't work like that because Paul didn't do it, because Peter didn't do it, because James didn't do it. Because None of them did. They stepped away from the powers that be, the, the scripture calls them the empire. They stayed away from that and they went to people and said, do you know what? The God in you that died on the cross, that was raised from the dead, that has filled you with his spirit, this God can allow you to take this kingdom wherever you go and whatever you do. And they took the world and they turned it upside down. All the power of Rome, all the power of all the superpowers and all the empires could not stop the kingdom coming to this world. Through all their persecution and their torture and their death and their feeding to the lions and their crucifixion and their lighting people on fire and their taking away their wealth, and everything, they could not stop the kingdom coming. Jesus prays in the Lord's Prayer. What does he say? Thy kingdom come, will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this is Jesus praying. This is the way we pray. We pray that the kingdom comes, that it will be on earth as it is in heaven. And that happens when you take the kingdom and you take how Jesus lives and you do that in your homes. You do that at your work. You do that with the annoying people in the line at Bunnings and at Kmart and at Woolies and the people that you see as you're walking your dog. That's what it means to be a Christian. It doesn't mean that we go and push a set of morality. It doesn't mean we go and push a set of culture onto a group of people that don't want it. That is not the kingdom. The kingdom of God is not shoving people, shoving tracks in people's face and telling them they're going to hell unless it, that's not the kingdom. It might be, it might be significant for some, but for the most part, it's about how you treat people. If you love them and treat them with dignity and kindness and you say to someone, do you know what? You are unique and special and created and God loves you and you have a story and there's something profound you can do. That tells them in a disordered world that they have a point. And that point is what brings them to a place of being alive. And then they take that aliveness and they go into their family and guess what they do in their family? And then they take that and, and the kingdom comes. Sound good? Sounds simple, doesn't it? It's beautifully simple. Jesus was continually trying to present this idea and this message and this paradigm, this way of thinking to his disciples because what they wanted more than anything else was for the kingdom to come. But the kingdom coming for them was they at the moment were laying on the ground. Israel was laying on the ground and Rome had their boot, their foot on their neck and they were pressing whenever they wanted. And Israel wanted the kingdom to come because for them the kingdom coming was looking like Rome would be on the ground and Israel would have its foot on their neck. That's what they wanted. That was what the kingdom was. And Jesus is saying to them again and again and again and again, first shall be last and the last shall be first. Love your enemies. Help those who persecute you. Turn the other cheek. He's bringing this idea of the kingdom not being about power when we mix kingdom and power, we do all sorts of horrendous things. Just look at history. Just look at history. We do terribly wicked, wicked things when the church gets in power of the state. We don't do well because we were never designed. It was never intended to be like that. Ours is a grassroots movement. Ours is a in your home. Ours is a having coffee. Ours is a at play group. Ours is a at work profound and powerful movement that changes the world 
when we start to take this thing and show people just how much God loves them and just how much He calls them to a life that is far bigger than brokenness and sin. Because a life of brokenness and sin is small and tiny and hurts you and hurts the people around you. A life of the kingdom is expansive and large and draws you into something far bigger than yourself. Amen? This is all right, isn't it? This kingdom stuff is profound and powerful. Let's get into our story. So with that in mind, let's get into our story. So who have we got in our story? First one is our judge, okay? I don't know about you, but every time I've ever heard this story and every time I've ever read this story, I've always implied that the judge is God. Hey, have you implied that? Sure, Aaron. Of course you're correct. I've always implied that the judge is God and that the widow is us. And the idea is that we come to God with our prayers and we persist and we nag and we ask and we push and we nag and we ask and we push and we prod and we ask and we ask and we ask. And if we do it enough, God will eventually say, all right, have your thing, have your whatever, have your healing, have your miracle, have your whatever you want, just leave me alone. That's the way I've always read it. It's the way I've always understood it. But it's incorrect. Ooh. Savor the tension. So in Luke chapter 16, verse 8, we have the, the, uh, the parable of the shrewd the parable of the shrewd manager. Jesus again tells us this story, and this word he uses in that story, dishonest manager, is the same words that are used here about this judge. So he's setting up a character type. Okay, a character type. A man called Kohlenberger who wrote um, a commentary on Luke and on this passage, he says this, Therefore, we should probably understand the judge to be a man, a man of the world, in inverted commas, who, through crooked means, prided himself on shrewd judicial decisions. The judge is not God. The judge is a caricature that Jesus is setting up. He's, he's holding up this dichotomy, this one end and one end. And the judge is at one end. The judge is shrewd and rude. And Jesus wants us to see that he's in this position, but he's unfit to be in this position. His character is sadly lacking, yet he's in this position of judgment. Second character is our widow. So the widow in Jesus' time is one of the probably three most vulnerable people within the community. So the widow, the orphan, and the the alien or the refugee. They are the most vulnerable people in Jesus' time. For a widow, if she was married and wealthy husband, if he died, she didn't inherit any money. It would go to her son. And if they didn't have a son, they only had a daughter, then it would go to her husband's brother's. And she was completely at the mercy of the men in her life as to whether or not they would care for her, look after her, or feed her. If they didn't, she would become destitute. So if you were a widow, you had virtually no power and very, very, very little influence. The one place that you did have a chance to have a say was the court. And the courts were set up so as that the, the most vulnerable within the community had a place where somebody other than them could advocate on their behalf. Okay, so you've got the most vulnerable who needs the court and you've got the judge whose character is poor and he shouldn't be here. 
Jesus speaks a lot. That's our characters. This is his setup. One of the things he says in there, in, in the beginning, in verse 1, he says to them, uh, Jesus told a story showing that it, is, that it was necessary for them to pray consistently and never quit. That's what he says when he starts. This is going to be about prayer. This is going to be about prayer. And you have to do it. Jesus talks a lot about prayer and he withdrew to pray a lot. This is just the references in Luke where he withdrew to pray. So they're going about their life. Jesus is doing something and he withdraws to pray and they write it down. And they've got a big bunch of people, a big old crowd of people who are following him. And he goes, I'm off. I'm out. I've got to go and do some, do some prayer. And he, and he leaves. And they're like, what do we do with these thousands of people? I'm off. And he models to them this idea that I have to go away and hear God and listen to God and be renewed by God and be refreshed by God. I have to, I have to be in tune with God. I have to drown. I have to kind of, the world's noises is loud and I'm drowning in it. I have to just go and just sit for a bit and hear and listen, be renewed, be transformed. And then he starts teaching about prayer and he does it a lot. This is just in Luke. This is him spending time saying to them, when I go, when I'm done, when I'm finished and this kingdom is coming, you need to wrap your head around this culture that needs to become part of who you are. Because this culture of prayer will be absolutely vital for you to bring the kingdom to this world. Because Jesus' ultimate goal and Jesus' ultimate plan is to bring this kingdom, to bring the order of God into the disordered world that Paul says that Satan is the ruler of this world. That the chaos creature is the ruler of this world. The disordered one rules this world. God brings order into this world and you can't do that if you're not a person whose life is enmeshed and immersed and marinated in prayer. Amen? When we say prayer, we don't just mean, Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you. Please give. Please bless. That's our style of prayer. But there are millions of different ways we can pray. You can pray scripture you can meditate you can think you can walk you can be in the line at bunnings and be saying to god help me see the value in this person who keeps telling their story about their kid and their present there's a big line help me see the value in that human being because i can't at this moment that's prayer and it's it's something that is weaved into everything we do constantly four and five we get this insight from the from the judge this is the judge's soliloquy i love that word i learned it last night soliloquy i don't know what it means but it sounds really cool (laughs) this is what the judge says this is his inner monologue his inner thinking but after this went on and he said to himself i care nothing what god thinks even less what people think But because this widow won't quit badgering me, I'd better do something and see that she gets justice. Otherwise, I'm going to end up beaten black and blue by her pounding. The language used here in Greek at the end is boxing language. This is what Eugene Peterson does beautifully in the message. He takes Greek and then he puts it into everyday language, and it's fantastic. This, at the end here, it says the pounding is literally boxing language about someone who's been punched in the face. The judge says, this woman is just going to keep punching me in the face until she gets what she wants. 
So his decision to bring justice to her is not because he's a good man. It's not because it's the right thing to do. He's not saying this widow has got no one advocating for her. This is my place. This is my role. And I'm going to distribute. No, he says, if I don't, she's just going to keep on and on and on and on. And it's going to drive me nuts. Let's just bring you justice. This is the point of the story. Okay, the point of the story is that the judge acts out of self-centeredness. The judge brings justice out of self-centeredness, not because he's good or because it's right, but because it's easy for him. Make sense? Let's read the next bit. Verse 6 and 8. Then the master said, then Jesus said, "Do you hear what the do you hear what that corrupt do you hear what that judge, corrupt as he is, is saying? So what makes you think God won't step in and work justice for his chosen people who continue to cry out for help? Won't he stick up for them? I assure you he will. He will not drag his feet. Jesus, this judge did the right thing in the end out of a self-centeredness. And he's a terrible man. Unfit for his position, unfit for his role. His heart is bad. And then he says, Now God who loves you, how much more will the God who loves you want to step in and advocate for you? Step in and listen to you. Step in and hear you. Step in and empower you and give you what you need. The point of the story, the bad judge did it just because... God who is good, can you imagine how much energy he wants to bring you and give you and anoint you with and fill you with, however you want to say that? That's the point of the story. And the idea about praying, it's not vending machine. It's not, God, I want to be rich. God, I want to be wealthy. God, I want to... That stuff doesn't work. If we're asking God for things, those things, when they line up with the kingdom... There is an authority to them. There's a power to them. There's a a truth to them. And those things happen. If we're praying and asking God to build us up selfishly, then I don't like your chances. Because if you actually get what you want, who's ever wanted something desperately until they've actually gotten it? And then once you actually get what you want, it's like, I didn't really want that anyway. I didn't really want that anyway. The things we pray for, if they line up with kingdom things, then there is an, a, a power to them. There's an energy to them. There's a strength to them. There's a conviction we have to move even without confidence in and of ourselves. So as we finish, this is what Jesus says right at the end. But how much more of that kind... Let's read this together. But how much of that kind of persistent faith will the Son of Man find when... So that's the challenge, isn't it? Jesus says to us, God loves you and he's good and he wants to give you good things. But will we want them, number one? And will you pray for them, number two? And will you share them with the people around you? Because remember, their idea of the kingdom coming is that the power will shift and that Israel, instead of being oppressed, will become the oppressor. And Jesus is saying... How much of you will get this idea of the kingdom and how much of you, how many of you and how much will get into your spirit and your soul and your life? So when I come back, we will find you bringing the kingdom to earth. Because at the end of the day, 
What God calls us to is to bring the kingdom to this world. And we will never be able to do that, and we certainly won't be able to do that effectively unless we are bathed and soaked and driven and enmeshed and marinated in prayer. Because we can't live out the kingdom on our own. We can do it for a little while, but until we have God empowering us and enabling us and equipping us and and loving us and filling us, and that happens when we pray. And prayer is not just this. It's much, much bigger. Much, much, much bigger. Brad's going to speak to us uh, soon about uh, a popstick sculpture. And I want you to just think about the kingdom coming and our place in the kingdom and your unique role within that place. Because there's something big for us to understand that bringing the kingdom is not about standing up and preaching. Bringing the kingdom is about giving a drink of water. Bringing the kingdom is about helping someone who's got nowhere to be feel like they've got somewhere to be. It's about blowing up a balloon for a child, offering a drink of water, having a cup of tea, having a conversation, letting someone in at a line. It's so profoundly, simply beautiful that we can do it wherever and we don't need to be those people who are trying to push a culture on another people, on a, a set of beliefs. And we love them and we let God and the Spirit convict and do what God and the Spirit does. Amen? Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the persistent widow is a wonderful story about the kingdom. And it's a wonderful story about how good God is and about how God loves us, and about how God wants to move, and about how you want us to keep that in our thinking as we go about our everyday life. Would you help us see as we step into the Christmas season in a big way, would you help us bring the kingdom to our families? Would you help us bring the kingdom when we're at Kmart, and Big W, and Bunnings, and the grocery shopping? Would you help us bring the kingdom as we're preparing food, and wrapping gifts, as we're talking to family we may not want to speak to, Would you help us bring the kingdom in every situation we find ourselves in? Empower us. Give us the power to do what is very difficult. Give us the power to love the unlovables. We can do that because you love us. Help us bring order to our families. Help us bring order to our, our kingdoms so that we can see your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And all of God's people said, Amen.